This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Now, I'm super excited to share with you all what is about to be a deep dive into one of the most promising and often overlooked small farm enterprises, and that's small fruit and berry growing. So in order to get the scoop on berry growing, I went straight to the source to speak with Blake Cothran, the author of the new book, The Berry Grower, Small-Scale Organic Fruit Production in the 21st Century. Now, Blake Cothran is an organic farmer, educator, professional horticulturalist, and small business owner in Stanford, Kentucky. He has been a grower for over 25 years and has been operating an organic plant nursery business for almost 10 years. His specialties are small fruit production, orchard care, nursery production, and temperate fruit growing. Of course, there's a lot more to his backstory, but he lays it all out in the first few minutes of the episode, so I'll leave it for him to tell you. Now, we went really deep into the topic of our interview and covered more than two hours of material, and for this reason, I've broken the discussion down into two parts in order to make it more manageable to get through. Now, in the two-part series, we covered almost the full range of the main topics in his book. In the first session, we started by exploring why small fruit and berries are such an attractive enterprise and what sorts of farms they might be best suited for. We also look into the challenges and the difficulties from growing bush and vine fruit that many people are still yet unaware of. From there, we dissect some essential learning and evaluation that you should do of your land and your climate in order to choose the cultivars that are best suited for your site and your business, as well as how to source your planting material, considering all of the pitfalls of ordering seeds and plants from nurseries and online. We even started talking about maintenance considerations of different cultivars and care and fertility methods that Blake has found success with in his ample experience. Now, all of this is going to set you up really well for the second part of this series when we break down the practical assessments for planning a profitable berry business and how to design and plant your cultivated space to ensure that you don't have difficulties and inconveniences that cause you to lose money. Now, as a bonus to this series on small fruit and berry growing, I'm also giving away two copies of Blake's new book, thanks to the generous people at New Society Publishers, to members of our Regenerative Skills Discord server. If you're not already a member, you can join for free on the homepage on the website at regenerativeskills.com or through the link on our link tree on the Instagram bio. Once you're in, just send me a direct message and let me know that you'd like to be entered to win a copy of the book. That's all you got to do. I'll be announcing the winners one week after the second part of this series comes out. But all of that's for later. Right now, I'll get this journey started and hand things over to Blake Cothran. Welcome, Blake. Hey, it's really good to have you on the show. It's great to finally connect. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book, The Berry Grower. But before we get into all of that, uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell me and our audience a little bit about how you started out in farming in the first place? Sure. Thank you, Oliver. It's great to be on the podcast today. So I'm from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and I grew up there and I started in my horticultural pursuits when i was a little boy um i was very very young probably seven eight years old and uh, i started growing tomatoes in a little raised bed garden that had been basically abandoned that was connected to my family's house i started growing tomatoes there 
And my mom would always encourage me by buying me um, strawberry plants or some type of neat seeds. And they'd sometimes throw, you know, rotten cantaloupes and tomatoes into the garden and all kinds of crazy things would sprout and grow in it. And it was just super fascinating to me. And I started, that's where I started. And then as I became a teenager, I became more interested in it. So I started building more garden beds and um, making compost. I, I, I learned how to start seeds. And one of the most important things I did was I started studying books on growing organic vegetables and flowers and fruits. And this was before YouTube and, and there were, you know, not that many internet websites about this back then. This was like um, very early 2000s. And uh, so I was just reading, reading lots of books. And that really educated me on the basic principles, you know, like Rodale's organic gardening encyclopedia is a classic. Um, a lot of other books I read that just really educated me. And then I would put that knowledge into action the following season. I'd spend all winter reading a stack of books. That following season, I would be informed on so many new things and educated and I'd do it. And from there, um, I actually started taking care of neighborhood fruit trees that had been abandoned and I would find you know some nice you know grapevines in someone's backyard and if I knew them somewhat I'd be like hey can I come and prune your grapevines and and spray them with organic sprays and I did that and all of a sudden in a few months they'd be having these huge crops of fruit so that was really interesting and um, I spent some time in intentional communities uh, for a number of years and I would take over the the community gardens that were often kind of dilapidated and um mm -hmm. Then I so I was scaling up and it was all non-for-profit at that point, you know, but I, I had my foundation set and then I scaled up and all of a sudden I was now doing a half acre garden and then maybe uh, another place I was doing a little bigger. Maybe now it was like an acre garden. And so then I was able to learn cover cropping and doing things on a bigger scale and using machinery. And these were all new skills I learned in my early 20s. And uh, eventually um, in 20... Uh, 14, I ended up starting the nursery business and an organic farm in Kentucky. And so that was uh, kind of the culmination of all that uh, preparatory work I did for over 10 years, uh, well over 10 years, um, just learning the basics and getting out there and doing it, but also not having the pressure of, I've got to make this work financially. I was just doing it. And my financial stuff was all, you know, covered for whatever reason, you know, I was still living at home or I was in the intentional community where I wasn't worried about bills and stuff at the time. So that was also really helpful in getting a good start and not being under pressure to, to make a lot of money to pay bills to do it at the same time. Yeah, that's a fantastic trajectory. It's a really good example of something that I keep hearing as advice from other people who've been on this show and that I've been finding for myself too is, you know, so many people are excited about regenerative agriculture or homesteading and they want to start by buying a piece of land and jumping in and having that learning curve from like zero to 60. But it seems mm -hmm. like you went about it the right way of trying a few things out, studying in the off season, doing some experiments with very low risk until you felt confident and capable enough to make this a bigger part of your life and take the risk then with experience under your belt. I can imagine, like you said, it took a lot of the pressure off of it to be a viable enterprise right from the beginning. And the things that you started off doing, you already knew how to do quite well. Is this something that you would recommend for other people as well? 
Yeah, it's it's crucially important because you know you, you think about it. It's like this with any enterprise. Like you're you start learning a bike, you start with training wheels. You want to get good at lifting weights. You don't just go in there and start bench pressing 200 pounds day one. You know, you start with 25 pounds and you go to 50, then you go to 75, then you go to 100, then you go to 125. Otherwise, you know, you're just rushing things and uh, it's never good to rush things. And I, I used to rush things and I made a lot of very expensive mistakes and failures, um, both before I was doing it. Uh, as a profession and afterwards. And so you you have to learn the basics of things before you can go to the more advanced. And so it's like this with gardening, it's like this with farming. And you have to understand just because you want something to work and you have a dream and a passion doesn't mean it's going to actually work in reality. And so we have to be real about this. Um, you know, I do believe in positive thinking and, and optimism and, and all these things, but you also have to be realistic that working with the earth is a very, very, very dynamic system. And there's so many factors out of your control. And if you don't understand how to, how to prepare for those and manage all those factors, then things can sometimes kind of clash together and uh, cause a lot of um, challenges you may not be prepared for. And if you're, depending on this for a source of income, then you absolutely have to be trained. Like it's just like going to school or college before you start a career. So gardening and farming is no different. You have to start with the basics. You know, you should educate yourself, be mentored, practice on a small scale and then scale up. Fantastic. And so let's dive deep into how things started to go once you did move on to your own land and start your farm. And this culminated into the book that we're going to explore even further in this interview on growing small fruit, growing berries. Was that the first enterprise that you launched when you got onto your land? Or is this something that developed after you'd already tried out a few other things? Yeah. So when I got on the land uh, and decided to start this farm with my wife, um, we knew that right away that the most, um, the most profitable route short term was going to be um intense vegetable production period um, because they just produce so fast and they're always in demand and kentucky is a really really good place to grow vegetables and uh not such a good place to grow fruit and we'll go into that a little bit later and so we started out with a csa operation very small i had maybe 15 people in the csa or something we were also doing a farmer's market in a small town farmer's market. This is not a big bustling city, you know, thousand, 2000 customer farmer's market, very small. Um, we started a home delivery service, which turned out to be a great option for us in our area. We also were selling to a local health food store. And in addition to the vegetable production, I started putting in some small fruits and those were blackberries, red raspberries and figs in addition to some various tree fruits. And at the same time as I was doing all this, we were also developing this small scale nursery operation with the intention that the nursery operation would eventually become the main business, um, which it ended up becoming that. And we, we actually don't even grow vegetables anymore for sale. And so um, in that 
uh, trial that we did with the small fruits, we learned a lot about um, marketing and the profitability of various fruits. And I had been cultivating small fruits at that point. That was when I was uh, 29 years old or so. I'd been doing it for well over 10 years at this point. So I had 10 years of, of on the ground experience under my belt and and uh, and knowledge and everything and doing it in various regions across the US. So I didn't go into it, you know, with a year of, of practice or no practice at all. Um, but that that's how we got started with the uh, the business and the small fruits. So it sounds like you were very strategic about this from the beginning. You know you needed cash flow and approach that from the market garden uh, so that you can, you know, get some some income moving through. And I would imagine, you know, it's going to take a little while, a couple of years in a lot of cases for the small fruit and, of course, even more for for orchards to start to produce. And it sounds like you started to test and introduce the small fruit through that CSA in order to determine whether to expand it, or did you already have a layout or a design for your farm by the time you started planting those? Well, we were, we had created a layout for the farm and whenever I would um, do the, the planning for each season for what I was going to sell and what I was going to plant, I worked on it for probably 30 hours um, before the season even started. So this was like very, very well organized um, operation. And when we first started, we were probably the lowest grossing uh, market table at the farmer's market when we first started, because we actually started the season very late. It was like August or September when we started. By the time we stopped doing the farmer's market, we were probably the highest grossing market. Uh, people there that were that as far as table sales not including csas and everything so it was uh it was very well organized and uh we did um go about it in a in a structured manner and um as we went along we saw that red raspberries were actually um a very strategic item and and i actually put those on the cover of the book for a reason because i consider those one of the very best small fruits any grower can get into and you mentioned uh, the time factor there. Sure, you know, most tree fruits, you're looking at three to five years before you even start getting yields, let alone marketable size yields. And that's one thing that I advocate for around growing small fruits is the yields can come in very rapidly compared to other fruits. Like for instance, red raspberries, they can start producing fruit within six months of planting from roots, not even plants, just the roots. And so this is, you know, in stark contrast to, say, pears that you're looking at four or five, six years to production. And, um, you know, copious yields can get produced from these small fruits, and they just seem to be always in demand and easier to grow. Absolutely. And so let's dig into the pros and cons of small fruit. Obviously, there's a huge range of them, so we can go through some of at least the, the major categories. But what have been some of the things that you've identified that need to be considered that are drawbacks from going right into this? And what are the, some of the real advantages that make this attractive? Well, you know, it just really depends on what your goals are, because, um, you know, if you're if you're the type of person that you, you have a, some sort of career or job and you want to, you know, turn your backyard, you have a large backyard and you want to turn it into fruit production to make some extra money and do something interesting in life. Small fruits are the way to go. They're, they're, they're probably your best option. 
um, unless you're going to do vegetables or, or some other type of growing. But if you want to do fruits, small fruits are a great way to go. Um, if you already have an existing farm operation, like let's say you, you already have a CSA operation, you're wanting to diversify and get into fruits, small fruits are probably the best option for you again, um, just because they fit right into all that so easily. Now, if you're wanting to start a, a farm from scratch uh, to make your full income, you know, I really am echoing what a lot of other people out there are, are going to say, and that's don't quit your day job just yet and just, you know, get it established and and you have to see how things go with it. Um, and so you don't want to just, you know, jump right in and hope that it works out. But uh, yeah, the small fruits can be can be a great option for like the micro grower, the urban grower, and someone who's got an organic farm that's looking to to diversify and get into something that's going to be relatively low input, valuable and in demand to enhance their their existing farm table or their CSA. I'm really glad that we're going into this specifically because small fruit berries in general, but vines is also something that you profile in the book, seems like the perfect middle ground in the transition between what I hear a lot of people wanting, right? There's less of the, uh, I guess, just time investment that is required for, let's say, a, a high turnover veggie garden and everything that goes in with annual production. But there isn't the lag time and I guess some of the other drawbacks of going into tree crop production, much like you talked about already. It fits this nice little middle ground where you can get pretty high turnover. They are perennial. And so there's a lot of maintenance in there that you that you can avoid or, or minimize. And whether you're going to stay at a market garden size or invest in some of the bigger plant infrastructure like trees and maybe even nut crops at some point, this can help you make that transition and can maintain a place even in a mature system by you know, making use of some of the trophic layers of an agroforestry system or food forest like is so popular right now um, for extra yield and uh, potentially pretty lucrative income. And so where do you see this fitting in, not only in what you've experienced for uh, your own farm, but for the various different agroforestry configurations and ambitions, let's say from garden size to, to larger farm size when it comes to, to its place in the business? Sure. Um, yeah, it, it can be an excellent choice for, for everything you just said. And yeah, so in the early 2000s, I built this urban agroforestry um, food forest in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a very mature system now. And I really learned a lot about the sequence of events that happens when you're doing this. And um, of course, food forests are a whole other topic. But what I can say is that berries are naturally a part of the sequence of a grassland turning into a forest. And what I learned along the way and, and through observation is that berries are actually like a natural form of barbed wire, which keep out browsing animals, especially deer, um, and keep them away from trees. And so this allows the trees to be protected from deer rubbing them or browsing on them. And they will eventually grow to the point of then shading out and killing out the berries and making a more mature forest ecosystem. And so that being said, in between rows of fruit trees, in order to produce income and a product, 
years before the fruits themselves mature, berries are a great choice. And you can do black raspberries, red raspberries, blackberries, you know, other things, et cetera. I wouldn't recommend blueberries because they're they're like a long-term, you know, shrub. They can live for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Blackberries and things, you know, they usually start to peter out after eight or 10 years or so. But they're a great option um, to bring in production in an orchard system fast or or a food forest system fast while the trees have time to mature. So they do fit into that um, very well. So I see all of the benefits. And I mean, to me, it's very clear in my understanding of ecology. So the benefits of small fruit and berries in the succession of an ecosystem and the roles that it plays in creating the conditions for other plants to thrive as well is, is very clear. But there are some challenges associated with this too. It's not all easygoing, despite the quicker turnover, the established markets for these fruits, there are some challenges in managing them. Can we go over some of those? Sure. So yeah, the management is something that I think is is one of the major skills that's lacking with fruit production that I've seen on the non-professional level. So, you know, the, the guys that are, that are the, the, the pros that are growing, you know, the berries for the, the grocery stores, you know, they've, they've got it all down and um, whether it's organic or not, but the small scale growers and the, the people that um, are out there that I'm sure listen to your podcast that are like wanting to do community gardens or backyard production or, or some sort of urban thing or nonprofit thing. I've, I've seen this all over the United States and even other parts of the world that people don't really understand the basics of growing and managing fruit crops. Vegetables seem to be a little easier and a little faster to, 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 to handle. Um, you know, you just dig up the soil, add a bunch of compost, plant some squash seeds and bam, you got zucchinis, you know, but fruit production is just different and it's, it's an art and it takes a lot of, diligence in understanding how to care for each fruit, how to prune each fruit, um, how to train each fruit, choosing the right varieties for your location and your region and not just buying whatever you find online that sounds good. Um, all these things are huge factors that play into the success or the failure of fruit growing. And that's something that I cover in detail in the book because I feel like it's such an important topic that often gets overlooked. A lot of information out there tells you, you know, you plant this type of fruit and you, you know, you do a little this, a little that, and there it is. But there's a lot of other information out there, such as exact variety, selection, training, so, so on and so forth, that's not so easily found and is often overlooked. Um, I've seen a lot more dilapidated fruit trees and berry plantings than I've seen ones that I thought, wow, this is really well-maintained and really productive outside of a commercial orchard. Um, I've seen a lot more that I, I look at and I can tell, wow, this either got neglected a long time ago or the person that did it really didn't know what they were doing and uh, it's um, not going so great. So that being said, you know, you really have to learn and dedicate to the fundamental uh, basics of growing different fruits. And it varies depending on what type of fruit it is. Like, for instance, in the agroforest system, 
if you just plant a lot of berries or, or in an orchard system, if you just plant a lot of berries in between, say, uh, rows of apple trees, well, you've created a, a dynamic now that you now have to deal with because first of all, there's going to be weeds and weed trees that will grow in between the berries. And if those aren't managed, they're going to take it over. Now it's not just grass in between the trees. So you can't just go through with a mower and mow it all down and say, okay, it looks great. You know, there's no weeds. So now you've created a, a situation that you're either going to know how to manage or you're not. And it's either going to become a productive part of the system or it's going to become a weedy mess that you're going to then say, okay, it's better if we just, you know, bush hog all this down and start over or, or just get rid of it. So um, that's one of those dynamic factors I'm talking about with when you're working with fruit trees and you're working with fruiting plants, you, you might think it's going to look a certain way, but then it turns out a different way because there's all these other dynamic factors that come into play. So for instance, you have to have plans for um, weed control and weed management and grass control and grass management. And um, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to handle that with synthetic mulch, like black landscape fabric? You're going to handle it with organic mulch cardboard you know what weed string trimmers you know what are you going to do um and is it practical and is it going to actually work and so that's something that i i talk about in the book as well and it's a really important factor um you know in general it's going to be easier to manage um fruit when it's um not mixed in with everything else you know, and I know that goes against a lot of um, permaculture idealism of, of having everything sort of mixed together. But if you're really wanting to have something be very, very productive for marketing purposes, you're going to want to grow it in like blocks or rows, um, generally speaking. Like if you look at any successful um, CSA operation or organic farm operation that's really successful at what they're doing, 99% of the time, that's going to be how it is. You're going to have, here's our row of carrots. Here's our row of tomatoes. Here's our row of lettuce. Here's our row of salad mix. It's not, well, here's, here's one lettuce plant and here's one tomato plant. And there's a few carrots under it and there's an onion. And then there's a few zucchinis like that. That's fine in a backyard situation, but on a farming situation, it's just so much more practical and, and efficient to have everything kind of blocked together. Now I'm not saying that it should be, um, a monoculture of nothing but raspberries for an acre, but you can have it in, uh, you know, a hundred foot row of raspberries, a hundred foot row of blackberries, a hundred foot row of strawberries, etc. Um, but it's generally just so much easier to manage it, harvest it, prune it, whatever, when they are in an organized uh, fashion like that. It just uh, is the best way to do it. And so these are all factors that you have to consider. I'm really glad you mentioned this because this is something that I always struggle to explain. As you know, there's this uh, this increased interest in things like centropic agroforestry, food forests and such, which advocate for very dynamic and diverse ecosystems in which everything is interplanted together. You've got all of the different strata of a forest right on top of each other, trying to make the most of the synthetic or photosynthetic potential of an area. Um, but just like you mentioned, it totally depends on the context. If that's your backyard and you're not trying to do this as a 
major enterprise that you're earning money from, yeah, that can make a lot of sense, uh, as well as the potential maybe if you're trying to get a UPIC uh, configuration or enterprise off the ground where people like the diversity and there's something different in season at different times and it's much more experience-based. But just like you stressed, if you are trying to effectively get through a harvest season and a maintenance schedule on something that you're going to be picking and marketing yourself, man, you've invited a lot of problems into your system if you've got everything stacked on top of itself and limiting the ways that you can access things. Because like you said, I mean, berry bushes, a lot of them are like barbed wire and getting through them is an absolute nightmare if you've got to access trees, if you've got to get a mower through there. And it's great to have that as a consideration before you go out and start planting. Now, with that in mind, all of these different fruits have their own maintenance schedules, the care that they need for the soil, pruning, propagation, uh, fertility, all of those things. And you outline quite a range of them in your book. Do you wanna go through either as categories of fruit and talk about the maintenance and soil health considerations, or is it better to take things by cultivar and go through them individually? So about, about the um, agroforestry, um, maybe you know how to pronounce his name better than I do. Stefan Sub Subkowiak. Subkowiak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just want to mention him. So as far as agroforestry goes in a temperate sense, I think that a lot of people um, are confusing tropical Agro, uh, agroforestry with temperate agroforestry because they're two completely different things. And if we look at the original um, agroforestry models that were put forth in, in old permaculture books that got everybody kind of turned on to this concept, they're based on tropical and subtropical growing. And in the temperate zones, things just work differently. And I think that uh, Stefan Subkowiak in Canada and in, in Quebec he has it down uh, better than most that I've seen in terms of blending agroforestry with traditional orcharding and making a really functional system that works. And, um, you know, his model is kind of like a U-pick uh, crossed with um, harvesting, you know, loads of apples and pears and selling them, you know, however he sells them on his own. And so that model works really good. And he does have things kind of mixed in there. It's also Canada where things grow a lot less crazy than they grow in Kentucky. Um, you know, here in Kentucky, we have weeds that, that will get eight feet tall, 10 feet tall in a season um, from seed. And so it's just different growing conditions. So you, you have to understand your region and what it can handle and, and not try to replicate something that you read about in a book or saw in a video, especially in a region or, or, or climate zone that's completely different than yours. So that's all an important factor. And, and we just have to be not, not too idealistic. You know, I advocate people experiment and try new things, but you want to do that on a small scale first to see if it actually works. Well, so before we jump to the next question, can you clarify a little bit some of the major differences between tropical, subtropical, and temperate agroforestry configurations or enterprises? What are some of the main considerations that differentiate them? Yeah. So... From what I've seen, you know, I spent um, over a year in Hawaii learning tropical agriculture and permaculture in Hawaii. And 
I saw these incredibly impressive systems there with just towering fruit trees, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 foot, foot tall jackfruit and pedolai and uh, mangoes and coconuts. And I mean, it's just incredible durians and all this stuff. And, and there's something about fruit trees in the tropics. They can handle a little bit more shade. And they can also handle higher humidity and and moisture. And so, and there's a lot of understory species in the tropics that can handle shade and handle super high humidity and still make good crops and still thrive. And in the in the temperate zone, we have a lot less diversity to choose from. And plants are most fruiting plants are much more sensitive to high humidity and shade here. And so if you plant fruit trees too close together, they're going to start shading each other out, which is going to make the lower branches eventually defoliate and dry up and die. And it's going to make the trees lanky and unproductive. There's not that many fruits that can grow in the shade. I can only think of two, and that would be pawpaws and black raspberry, both of which are going to have much diminished crops in the shade. There's also some other things. I'm sorry. Have you, would you consider gooseberry one of those shade tolerant ones? Gooseberry can handle can handle some shade also. Also currants, um, that's a good point. Those mm -hmm. are two that can handle a little bit more shade. And in some situations, like in Kentucky, they actually need to be grown in a partially shaded location because it's so hot here. Yeah. Um, in cooler locations, they can be grown in full sun. However, once again, the crops are going to be reduced when they're grown in the shade. And so that's a big factor. And a lot of plants also are going to get a lot of um, fungal diseases like powdery mildew and things like that when they're grown in a partially shaded location. And so fruit trees in the temperate locations and berries, they need as much sun as possible. And if you start cramming everything together and trying to layer it, eventually what's going to happen is the lower, the lower story stuff is usually going to start to go into decline and the trees are going to eventually take over. And the biggest trees, like say nut trees, are going to shade out the fruit trees if, if you don't configure it properly and then make those die out or go into decline as well. And I learned this firsthand from observing an agroforest that I built over 20 years ago. That's, you know, a lot of in a lot of ways, that's exactly what's happened. And so I advocate for more learning at least the basics of traditional orcharding first and then put those practices into agroforestry if you want to go that route whereas a lot of people want to jump right into something that sounds exciting and radical uh, and innovative without learning the basics first and I just don't advocate that approach you know people can do whatever they want but I advocate learning the basics and the fundamentals first and then experimenting in your region to see what might work and what might not yeah, that sounds like the correct order of things for sure. And just to be specific, where do you make that cutoff between temperate, subtropical, and tropical? What hardiness zones are we talking about here so people have reference at home? Yeah, so basically, um, from all the research I've done, tropical means um, anything above uh, about 40 degrees or so that never goes below 40 degrees. Ultra tropical means it never goes below 50 degrees. Subtropical means it never really goes below 32 degrees 
And then temperate is anything that goes below 32 degrees or colder. And so um, USDA zones, I think, what is zone 10, the, the edge of the tropics? Yeah, I mean, so I'm trying to think about what we have here, right, in Spain. So around Barcelona and in southern Spain, as well as some of the northern coast, because it's close to the ocean, you'll get zone 10A. I don't think we have much zone 10B here, except maybe some of the, the islands off in the Atlantic. Um, right where I am right now is 9A, and we definitely get a few below freezing nights or weeks in the winter. So I think we're right on that edge. I think our area is considered subtropical. Um, and people often get that wrong. Tropical is actually the more tropical climate and subtropical, even though it sounds like it's below tropical, is actually the cooler of those two configurations. So we're on that edge and, and where I'm moving to is a bit colder. And so that's probably temperate. We're looking at zone 7B, 8A there, and it definitely gets, you know, uh, minus 10 Celsius, which is what, um, like in the 20s? Maybe as low as 15 degrees. Nah, 15 degrees is a little bit colder, Fahrenheit. Um, so yeah, I, hopefully that gives people some reference as to the areas that we're talking about and how they're classified based on frost zones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so um, just, to, just to clarify, zone 10 is 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Zone 11 is 40 to 50 degrees, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And so basically 10B is where... Uh, the subtropics uh, temperatures would start. Zone 11 would be tropical, zone 12 and 13 would be getting into ultra tropical. Okay, so I didn't realize that subtropical band was so thin. That's just like a one a hardiness degree zone. I thought it was a little bit wider than that. So yeah, it's definitely temperate when you get into nine and below. That's mm -hmm. good to know. Okay, so we've established those differences and some of the major considerations, mostly being access to sunlight and prevention of humidity for productivity of these cultivars. Let's go now into some, uh, some more details about the maintenance considerations, right? Like you said, very few people get this right. Uh, taking care of the fertility, the pruning, the, the general maintenance of soft fruit and berries. Are there patterns that are broadly applied to the range of species that we're talking about here, or is it very specific to the cultivar? Well, it's, there are specifics to species, you know, for instance, blueberries are only going to succeed in an acidic soil uh, pH, whereas other fruits, most other fruits are going to do better um, at pHs that are more alkaline. And so that, that's like a basic factor. As far as fertility goes, um, most fruits do best with, with fairly high fertility. They're, they're heavily producing. They produce a lot of foliage, a lot of stems, a lot of canes, a lot of fruits, a lot of seeds. All those things require high fertility. Um, soil type is, is, can be variable. There's small fruits that can do well in clay soil, sandy soil, loamy soil, rocky soil. Um, there's some that can do good in all those types of soil. Um, for instance, blackberries, they can thrive in sand, they can thrive in clay, they can thrive in loam, rocky soil, etc. Now, there's, there's certain fundamentals to, um, to how you deal with your soil type that are going to make the operation go better or worse. And so, basically, um, anything you can do to increase organic matter in the soil is going to be a huge plus. 
So if you're able to do cover cropping on the site beforehand, it's going to pay a lot of dividends in the future in soil health, moisture retention, microorganism level, organic matter percentage, and all these things are very, very important to um, to growing healthy crops that don't rely on a lot of out, um, inputs, including irrigation. And so there's there's things that you need to, to take into consideration, and you can only do those things if you understand your site well. So if you're brand new to your site, you're going to want to spend some time studying it, studying the region. Um, there's actually a great tool here that a lot of your listeners are going to be very interested in. And this is a USDA website. And it's um, HTTPS backslash backslash web soil survey soil survey nrc.usda.gov. And this is an incredible tool that is a little awkward to use like most government websites. Um, it's a little awkward to use at first. Um, as soon as the website opens, there's this green button that says start WSS. You click that button and then this map pops up and you have to, I can't go into exactly how to use the website just now. It's, it's fairly intuitive. You, you, you should be able to figure it out. Um, but you can, you can look up anywhere in the United States um, it may go beyond the United States. It may just be United States. I'm not 100% sure. But if you're in the United States, it, you can look up any location in the United States down to a backyard level practically, and it'll tell you exactly what type of soil that site has. And there's a, a key. Uh, everything is coded like MDD or something like that, and you can look up what that means, and it'll tell you what type of soil it is. And so that's an incredible tool. Um, another thing that's often overlooked by people is utilizing your own tax dollars by going to your county extension office and your agricultural county extension office. You, you can contact them. You can also contact the soil conservation district. There's other um, offices in other countries, including Canada and Europe, that have these types of services where you can go to them and you can say, this is the address where I'm wanting to do X, Y, Z. and um, what type of soil does this have? Uh, what's the history of this site? What was it utilized as, you know, before I purchased it, um, which you should really know that anyway. But um, they can tell you exactly what type of soil type you have. They can give recommendations and they might even be able to recommend locally appropriate cover crops um, as well as cultivars of fruit, which is an incredibly important thing to know before you get into this. Not only, okay, I want to grow strawberries and raspberries and blueberries, but what varieties, what uh, AKA cultivars are going to be appropriate for my region. And so going to your local ag extension office or, or agricultural offices in your country can be a great starting point to learn what do they recommend. And it may not be what you finalize on, but it can at least be a great starting point. Yeah, why not use those resources? The the U.S. has some, you know, great extension services, like you mentioned, and a lot of web services as well. I've been starting to find out about the ones that exist here in Spain. There are some equivalent things. I, I found those soil maps with the, the coded function, and I don't know about an extension service. I think that might not exist, but 
it's worth digging into these and getting as much information as you can from existing sources before you go into trying to figure all that out yourself. And like you said, it can give you a really good head start uh, without having to do too much guesswork. Um, and to reference Stefan Subkowiak, like you did earlier, he talks about trying to grow things that grow like weeds rather than the ones that you basically need to prop up on life support in order to get a yield off of. It's so much better to start with the things that do well in the natural conditions that you have instead of trying to make these baby sort of coddled conditions for something that you're always going to struggle to keep alive. That's definitely the place you want to start. And that's going to really vary depending on what region you're in. Like, for instance, in the southern U.S., like places like Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, blueberries grow like weeds and we'll get copious yields of great quality fruit with very little care and input. Um, muscadine grapes grow like weeds. Um, there's there's other things. But here where we're at in sort of the central part of the country, um, I can't get blueberries to, to even survive. And uh, and muscadine grapes are something you have to really coddle to get them to 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 make it here because of the the cold weather we experience. Whereas um, black raspberries grow like weeds blackberries grow like weeds um, there's a lot of other fruits that just do great with very little care and whereas you go 12 hours north of here and it may be something totally different so it, it just the regions that you're the region that you're in is going to have its own specifics and it's going to vary um, from place to place it may even vary at your site from 10 miles away um, due to various factors is a uh, proximity to, to water bodies. Um, are you in a valley? Or are you in a mountainous area? Uh, are you on the leeward side of the mountain or the windward side of the mountain? You know, there's so many different factors that you have to, to really understand. And that's where uh, what you envision and what idealistically you want to do might have to shift over time to be um, acclimated to your specific site. Yeah, that's great advice. And that's also why I always tell people to manage their expectations before they figure out where they're going to be doing it and let your landscape tell you what it wants to be rather than the other way around, because fighting the natural conditions is not a recipe for success, whereas a lot of potential can reveal itself to you if you do the legwork to learn about the particularities of the land that you're working on and what is going to do there well there naturally. Um, and so with all of the research that you've done and the experience that you've amassed in the different experiments and gardens that you started, as well as your own experience in farming, you mentioned that you had resources in the beginning, like the Rodale's Guide to, to Organic Farming. I'm sure you've looked into different you know, sprays and fertilizers. In this regard, are there any things that really stand out as, oh, this was a this was a light bulb moment for me. This made a real difference. You know, obviously there are specifics within cultivars like we've already talked about, but are there pieces of advice or tools or, you know, bioinoculants, fertilizers that you found work very broadly and a good place to start? Um, one thing that really stands out, I can sum up in two words, deer fencing. <laughs> um, you know, here, here in Kentucky, and uh, a lot of parts of the eastern U.S., especially, um, you know, deer are just rampant. And um, the popul the wildlife population in the U.S. keeps increasing. 
because there's no longer much of a fur trade. Um, hunting has, has uh, probably decreased a little bit too. And um, as urban centers extend out into rural areas, they're clashing with wildlife. And so, um, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest issues that we have is just wildlife, possums, raccoons, deer, um, squirrels can be a huge issue. They're not so bad here, but they can be a huge issue. Um, birds. And so any type of animal protection that you can do um, is just vitally important. Um, you know, seven, eight foot tall deer fencing can be extremely useful. And there's actually nowadays there's high quality um, mesh deer fencing that is made out of like nylon type ropes um, that are like knotted together. And uh, that, that can be a very inexpensive option. Now, I went with the very expensive industrial type, huge post, high tensile wire, um, you know, type of fence. And uh, I don't regret that. But if you have a smaller operation um, or you're your backyard grower, you know, nylon deer fencing can be a good option. Um, much, much cheaper and faster to put up. And also different types of bird netting can be really effective and useful. Um, there's a lot of options out there um, for dealing with pests and diseases and, and animals that um, are very innovative. And one thing I mentioned in the book is that at this point in time, pretty much any sort of challenge that you have from fertility to pest, product, uh, pest protection to disease prevention, any of those things can be dealt with organically at this point. And that wasn't the case 20, 30, 40 years ago, where you look at these old books and it's talking about, you know, mixing up tobacco and rotenone and all these things to uh, deal with pests. And we, we that the organic um, pest control and disease control um, uh, industry, you could say, has made huge headway. And so that's that's why I that's why I call the book small scale organic fruit production in the 21st century, because at this point we have a lot of tools in the toolbox that we didn't have 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so basically any sort of issue you're having, there is some product out there that can deal with it without using toxic chemicals. And that goes for anything I can think of. And sometimes it just involves contacting various companies that deal in these products and just having a quick chat and just saying, Hey, I'm having really bad problems with powdery mildew on gooseberries. What do you recommend? And not that the solution should be, Oh, I'm having an issue. I need to reach for a bottle, but that can be useful. And especially when you're doing it um, commercially, you may need a quick fix that's going to solve the problem organically. So you don't have a crop loss or, or a big reduction in the crop, which could be a big economic factor for you. So we have to be practical. Um, if you want to make everything at home or, or, or deal with it some other way, that's up to you. But it's important to understand that there's tools in the toolbox that can be accessed and shipped to your door in a few days. Um, that's one of the benefits of, of where we're at right now um, with our technology. And so the, the big aha moments have, have been just around that, that understanding that any problem that you face can be dealt with um, these days with these modern solutions and also just the importance of, of just basic protection like deer protection like I was saying also another one that's huge is just 
putting metal cages around the base of fruit trees or shrubs can just save the life of that plant from string trimmers, animals like voles or, or uh, mice and other mechanical damage from getting hit and bashed with stuff. And so just, just understanding that the, the importance of protecting what you're investing in and what you, what you're planting um, it's an investment in time and resources and just adding a little couple dollars worth and, and five or 10 minutes of your time to protect it uh, can ensure help ensure that it's going to, to be a long-term productive uh, aspect of your farm. So another, another aha moment for me was understanding the power of vegan fertilizers. And so I had relied on fish emulsion for um, over 15 years um, from backyard gardening to doing it on a larger scale to doing it commercially. And using the fish emulsion just started to feel a little bit yucky. Like there's just something about it, like it smells really bad. And then you think about where it comes from and it's being shipped in from Alaska, which is very, very far away from us. And so I started considering um, vegan options. I also wanted something that I could put through a fertigation system that I knew was not going to make the fertigation system totally disgusting, like fish emulsion. Just imagine spraying that all over your greenhouse every day and what it's going to do to the pipes and the misters and the greenhouse itself. And I thought I started, I started thinking, I'm not doing that. So I started looking into vegan options. And there are some very, very high quality um, vegan fertility products out there these days that are made from fermented soy or fermented corn. And um, there's various brands out there, um, Nature Safe, there's a few other ones. And these products I'm using, I'm having amazing results with it. And it's just so much more clean and sattvic than using um, these, these, you know, ground up animal byproducts. And I'm just really, really pleased with it. The results have been fantastic. The products are very pleasant to work with and uh, they just do a great job as good or better than the fish emulsion, probably better actually. They're, they're less intense. They're kind of more gentle, but very, very effective. And I've seen identical, if not better results from using these vegan fertility products. Uh, interesting. That's actually the first I've heard of those. So that's, that's good to keep in mind. And like you said, you know, there's there's so many innovations that have happened around this coming from the organic farming world from the regenerative farming world and people finding novel approaches to deal with things that have plagued plants and growers for a long time. Um, by understanding plant physiology, soil microbiology at a deeper level, a way that we just didn't have knowledge about before. It's really exciting stuff. Thanks once again to Blake. I'll be posting all of the links to his business and the new book on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. 
So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. If you're already in the group and wanted to be eligible to win a copy of Blake's new book, The Berry Grower, Small Scale Organic Fruit Production for the 21st Century, just send me a direct message through the Discord letting me know that you're interested. Well, that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.